welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is ESG and fixed income, and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Karen Ward, Chief Market Strategist with our Global Market Insights Strategy Group. With me today is Travis Spence, Head of EMEA Investment Specialist Team, and Thomas Socha, Credit Analyst, Investment Grade Credit Research Team, both from our Global Fixed Income, Currency and Commodities Group within JP Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us, Karen. Glad to be here. So, Travis, what is environmental, social and governance or sustainable investments, as it's sometimes called, and what does it mean for fixed income? I would start off by saying that it's not new and it's very important. So we're long-term investors. We expect that issuers in which we invest in to conduct business in a sustainable manner and to demonstrate high standards in how they run their, their companies or indeed their countries. So these factors have always been considered in our investment process. One is material to cash flows. We believe that ESG issues can impact performance of fixed income investments, but how we account for these factors can vary by sector and instrument. So we formalized ESG integration approach across our global fixed income currency and commodities platform to make these inputs very explicit. Yeah, what may be helpful is to give an example of how some of these ESG issues can potentially have a material risk, but also could be a potential opportunity. So I, I like to call this the tale of two utilities. I cover the utility sector. There's one utility that historically had a very large carbon portfolio, meaning that they produced electricity from coal, very large in the past. And there's another utility that similarly had a very large coal-fired generation portfolio. The first utility, which I call utility number one, decided many years ago to transition their portfolio away from coal. They decided to continue to build more renewables. And that firm has now actually become one of the most highly ranked utilities in the sector. And from a performance perspective, has performed very well, continuing to get upgraded um, over the years. Utility number two took a very different track. They missed the train. They decided to continue on their current strategy of maintaining their carbon-heavy portfolio, not understanding the risks associated with that carbon portfolio. And ironically enough, their subsidiary, which owned a lot of these coal-fired generation assets, recently filed for bankruptcy. So it is clearly a material risk if you have a large carbon portfolio, especially in this day and age. So, Travis, for those who think that sustainable investing is about green bonds, you know, your point is that, no, this is a much broader issue we need to think about in our portfolios. Absolutely right. We consider green bonds as another category, another sector within uh, fixed income, which also requires a different way of looking at how ESG is integrated into that sector. So, for example, we apply a slightly different methodology for how we evaluate green bonds. We can do it first at the issuer level. And there are certain issuers like the World Bank, for example, where everything that they do has a sustainable purpose to it. And so we can evaluate them at an issuer level uh, and feel comfortable that, that the use of proceeds is going towards sustainable purposes. For the majority of issuers in the green bond universe, though, we need to look at the at, it, at an issue level. 
And we then need to look at and evaluate the use of proceeds uh, against what their expected use should be and make sure that they're being used for, for the right purpose. So again, we need to evaluate each individual sector that we look at within fixed income and judge the materiality uh, of the ESG factors and apply the right methodology to evaluate those factors in, in the right way. Travis, you speak with clients across Europe. Can you share with us how they are approaching ESG and fixed income? And do you think the momentum behind ESG is changing? I think certainly uh, the momentum behind ESG globally uh, is increasing. But Europe has, has always really been at the forefront of this uh, effort and movement. And what we're seeing now is that the goalposts are moving in the region. And I think it's gone from having an awareness of ESG to demonstrating impact. And what early on was, was considered the most logical strategy of excluding sectors or excluding companies altogether, that's moving to, to more of this notion of integration. And integration, as we've talked about, really requires the engagement uh, from the manager, from the investor with management, which implies that you have to have both access as well as scale to influence the direction of what management and raise these issues, but ultimately to, to influence the direction of the policies and management practices that uh, issuers will put in place to deal with, with some of these risks. And, and I think that's where at JP Morgan Asset Management, I think we have a bit of an advantage. Not only are we very research driven, and so we're regularly engaging with management as part of our normal process, we also combine with our equity colleagues and, and often our, our research analysts from the fixed income side are, are going together with our equity research analysts. And that adds a different dimension to the, to the way that we can engage with company management. So is ESG about screening companies? Is this a credit issue or are you employing a similar process for sovereigns as well? Well, I think ESG is really a persistent theme across all investment universes. So it really permeates every single sector or, or issuer that we look at. How we apply our ESG methodology can differ, though. So, for example, in, in a sovereign issuer, the E and the S could be material, but we would argue that probably governance is the most important factor that we need to look at. Um, so we need to assess the level of materiality across each of these three uh, characteristics. But with a sovereign the governance is going to be the most important because it's really about whether there's sound fiscal management. And so we need to make sure that we look at the political landscape that could maybe impact future direction of decision-making and, and management. But then we need to rank the the process for, for sovereign issuers. And we need to incorporate many factors, including governance metrics. And so we do this across all of the sovereign issuers that we uh, invest in. We take in not only our own internal proprietary analysis that we do on these issuers, but we also import uh, other uh, information that comes from third-party inputs, such as from the World Bank or World Economic Forum, or an organization called Transparency International that contribute into this scoring. And Tom, can I ask you to talk a little bit more specifically about how that data gets used in the investment process? Is it that a sovereign or a company is issued with a score and that rules them out? Or is it that it's information that forms part of a wider data set? How does it specifically impact your decision making? I think it could be all of the above. You know, we look at as Travis mentioned, you know, the materiality. So are there are it specific data points that we just frankly do not want to invest in this company because we think the ESG risks are very high? 
Or is it something that, you know, we understand that currently the risks may be high, but what's really important is to understand where the management strategy is going forward. I go back to the utility example. Historically, the utilities have been very high emitters of carbon. However, right now they're transitioning their portfolios. So if I look going forward, management teams have decided that this is a risk and they're going to be going away from this risk. So we look at it also as an opportunity. And just so I'm clear, you won't rule out, this isn't a sort of yes or no decision. This is about how it impacts your broader assessment of the risk and potential return of each um, investment that you're considering. Exactly. And so how does this approach to ESG and fixed income differ to the approach in equities? Well, the risks are the same. You know, an ESG risk is pretty much the same between equity and fixed income. I think what the important nuance is about the engagement. The equity community has the ability to vote. They vote their shares every year and during the proxy process. From the fixed income perspective, we obviously don't have that. However, what we do have is engagement with the company. Here at JP Morgan, you know, I often share meetings with my equity counterpart. So we have the ability to engage with management teams to engage with the CEOs, the CFOs, and really understand where their strategy is going forward. If we look at some of the data that's out there, and a lot of the data providers provide data that is historical in nature, which is very helpful to flag risks. However, if we look at where a company is going forward, that's really important. And I think that's where the engagement comes in. Not only do we engage at the company level, but we've also engaged at the industry level. The disclosure process around some of these risks is very important and frankly emerging. Can you give us an example of one of these engagement activities that's resulted in a change in how the company's operating? Sure. Actually, most recently, there was a fixed income investor meeting with a very large utility that has historically had a large uh, coal-fired um, portfolio. We engaged with them a few years ago and talked to them about the emerging risks, especially around climate change, the possibility for stranded asset risk. And the company has understood that there are changing investor viewpoints. And one of the potential risks that we looked at was the California insurance regulator which wanted to disclose all of its insurance companies that have holdings and utilities that have over 30% of their generation coming from coal. We highlighted this issue with this particular utility as they had a very large coal portfolio and said that one of your largest investors could have to potentially divest their assets. So we engaged with them. We talked to them about their strategy around whether or not they're going to keep these coal-fired assets. And over time, they've evolved their strategy to just roll off these assets. And, you know, when the useful life is over from the coal plants, they're not going to be building more coal plants. And in fact, they're going to be building more renewables. They historically already have, but they're going to be increasing the velocity of building renewables. And this is something that the company took our engagement and decided to change part of their strategy in terms of where they were putting their capital expenditures 
and where their risks in their portfolio really lie. Interesting. It changes the the concept of bond vigilantes, doesn't it? The bond vigilantes doing good for the world. It's it's good to hear. Um, Travis, maybe if I can come back to you. Uh, you know, you mentioned that ESG is about essentially thinking more broadly about your investments and making sure you're going to receive your payment back. Mm. But on a day to day basis, how how do you measure success of ESG integration? I think. The true measure of success for ESG integration really comes over the long term. So if you're avoiding potential issues that could come up because of any of these factors impacting cash flow or impacting the ability to repay or to be a material impact to the company itself, and there could be a a solvency issue uh, down the road. Remember that a lot of the the bonds that we hold can be quite long-term. These could be 10-year, 20-year obligations. So not only do we need to look at the short-term impact of cash flows, but we also need to look at the contingent liabilities that might be accruing because of some of these ESG issues. And it really goes back to the engagement that Tom was talking about, because our analysts in their day-to-day role need to be taking these factors into account and, and identifying things that we think might create a contingent liability down the road. And if we can identify those early, if we can embed those uh, into our issuer rankings um, that then affect portfolio positions, we can then avoid some of these uh, issues in portfolios. So it's really the measure over the cycle that we're able to uh, avoid these issues, make sure that they don't impact our portfolios and therefore create stronger investment returns for for our clients. I think a lot of people have the prior that taking into account ESG factors is more likely to limit your investment returns than enhance them. But I remember seeing some data recently on um, one of the equity benchmarks contrasting the ESG framework to the the non-ESG framework. And actually, what was really surprising to me was the ESG was actually outperforming the the non-ESG framework. Is there a similar proven worth in fixed income? Yeah, absolutely. As Tom said before, incorporating these things is not really any different from equity into fixed income portfolios. And We think that if ESG issues are properly taken care of by management, they're going to create stronger companies and those companies are going to create stronger returns over time. So we've absolutely seen it when we do our own back testing, uh, look screening for a higher ESG scoring through our own proprietary system, incorporating other third party data into that. We see that over time, better ESG companies are going to create better returns in your fixed income portfolios. We fully agree with that. It is absolutely paramount to to include these these issues and considerations in any investment that we make. But we we definitely believe that over the long term, that's going to create stronger portfolios. And can you talk a bit about how ESG is changing in the minds of clients? Is it becoming a more strategic priority? Have you seen? I think I think clients globally are much more aware, much more focused on embedding ESG into their portfolios and embedding sustainable practices in their investment portfolios. And and this cuts across their entire portfolio. So it's not just about equities anymore, um, but they want to see it incorporated in fixed income as well. The trend that we're seeing, though, is really from going from what early on was an exclusion and what I think investors are moving towards now. And they don't want to necessarily limit the universe outside of some of the more obvious sectors like weapons or controversial weapons and things like that. 
So they're looking for these decisions to be integrated. And so what we're seeing is the spectrum is moving from one of exclusion to really one of, of integration. But what that means is that there needs to be this engagement with companies to promote more sustainable practices and therefore reward those behaviors over the long term. So Travis, is this just about managing company-specific risk or does this apply across the fixed income spectrum? I think ESG applies across the whole fixed income spectrum, but because of the nature of of sectors being different and issuers being quite varied between something like a sovereign bond and a corporate bond or a securitized bond, the way that ESG is applied can can be very different. And we have to adapt our approach for each, each sector. So as an example, within the sovereign space, when we look at ES&G, really the governance is probably the most material factor that we need to look at within sovereign space. And we're looking for sound fiscal management. And we need to measure that across a, a range of, of sovereign issuers, some that have their own central bank, some that use a centralized uh, central bank like we have across Europe here. So we adapt our approach to really focus on the fiscal management of a country. Um, We also incorporate other data sources from, for example, the World Bank or World Economic Forum or Transparency uh, International that can contribute to a final proprietary scoring that we have across sovereign issuers. And that can help us to evaluate some that are better in, in fiscal management, some that are not as, not as great in fiscal management, and that will then weigh into uh, our portfolios. So it's really important that we look at the materiality of each of those inputs, and they will all be relevant, but some will just be more material than others. And we have to take that into account when we look at individual sectors within fixed income. And does that range of information you just covered there give you a, a very different picture to what or scores we get from the rating agencies, for example? Yeah, well, there are, there are third-party data sources that look at, at ES&G factors. What we tend to find is that we need to make sure that we're being much more granular. So you can, you can relate it into rating agencies, and we, ha- we have our own internal rating that we put on every issuer. That incorporates the ESG scores, but even against some of the third-party data sources that we also take into account, we may have different scoring internally because we're looking at, for example, a subsidiary level issuer rather than the parent issuer. And so some of these nuances have to come into our, into our analysis when we, when we think about ES and G factors. And just to add on to that, as a fixed income investor, we are often investing in 10-year, 30-year bonds. So as Travis said, we need to take a a longer term view where some of the impacts to cash flows may not be one quarter, two quarters, three quarters out, but those risks could be three or four years out. And we need to be able to anticipate some of those risks given the long duration of some of the bonds that we hold. And I'm just thinking more broadly about this trend You can see that presumably a lot of our clients are being pushed in this direction because of the preferences of their end clients. And it was very fascinating to me after the recent UK election, looking at the different generational priorities and how they voted, that some of these factors that you might call ESG as such, you know, the impact of the environment, were very high on the priority list of the younger generation. So you can see as we sort of push this work stream forward 20 years or so, then that presumably from our end clients is going to only grow in terms of investors' interests and demand for this kind of activity. 
Okay, so Tom, can I ask you maybe to give us a few more examples? You've talked specifically about utilities, and I think in the commodity space or in in those type of emerging economies, that's pretty intuitive. But can I ask you to give me some more examples of ESG affecting sectors that perhaps might seem less obvious? Sure. So let me talk a little bit about the commercial mortgage bond space which from a securitized perspective may be not as intuitive as the risks for a utility or a metals and mining company. However, from an environmental perspective, it's actually very important. So one of the metrics that the analysts look at are LEED certifications. If we are investing in, say, a large commercial building, often we'll look to see if that building has a LEED certification. LEED certification is typically given to a building that has updated its energy efficiency, whether it's heating, it's air conditioning, it's windows, etc. And what our analysts have found are those buildings attract more clients. They tend to be more fully built out. Their capacity is usually close to full. And if there was need to sell that building, those buildings tend to attract higher prices. Also, again, sticking with the commercial buildings, if there is, say, a new building that's going up, we often hire environmental consultants to make sure that there aren't any environmental issues on the site. Environmental remediation can often be a very, very expensive endeavor and can often halt construction very quickly. So, From the securitized perspective, where it may not be as intuitive, looking at some of the environmental and ESG impacts can be very, very important and impact our investments. So listening to you both, it's it's clear that considering some of these ESG factors is really sort of going under the bonnet of the investment process. It's getting right into the weeds of what is going on in various companies, as well as different sovereigns. So... How does an investor apply an ESG approach? Is it about making sure they are getting their products, their investments through companies that are applying ESG analysis? Because surely there's a huge amount of research that's required behind this. Well, I think again, Karen, the direction that we're seeing clients moving into is, is really from being aware of ESG issues to measuring the impact. And the old way of measuring the impact was to exclude something. But if too much is excluded, you're taking away from the opportunity set. And that's not really what investors want. They want to have this positive engagement. That engagement, though, I think they need to be comfortable that the manager that they're working with is going to be taking all of these things truly into account. And it's not just a one-off exercise of measuring something against maybe a a third-party resource uh, and having some scoring. It's really going to be internalized in, in the entire process. So At the research analyst level, these things have to be incorporated as part of our fundamental and quantitative and technical research that we do. And it has to be factored in, especially into that uh, fundamental score of whether management is aware of of potential issues, is is working towards addressing those. And it's also going to be taken into account in the valuation. So is it more attractive or less attractive because of the relative value and how these things are being accounted for? So that's at the research side, but it doesn't stop there. It has to then go forward into the investment process. And only when you have a dialogue that's going on around each issuer with between the research analysts and the portfolio managers and that ongoing dialogue to talk about issues that are out there, talk about the valuation of those issues within an individual score of an issuer and how those are being reflected in a portfolio, 
once you have that permeating the entire investment process and permeating the, the dialogue with clients, does it truly become an integrated? So that's what I think clients are looking for, that there's the involvement, but there's also the engagement and there's the dialogue that's happening all the time that makes them comfortable that these issues are truly being factored in. So the manager needs to have the research resource capability, but also see it as a strategic priority. Correct. And from the bottom-up perspective, I think ESG lends itself to our strengths here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. We are a, a fundamental research-based house where research is part of our DNA. And as clients and as investors, we're demanding more and more data around ESG and taking out subjectivity and really doing the forensic research to uncover the specific data points and uncover some of those ESG risks. And that really plays into, again, our strengths. You know, our bottom-up analysis, we call on many different sources of information, whether it's regulatory filings and reports, websites, our engagement that we mentioned um, earlier with management to really understand their future strategy around some of these main issues. So, Tom, let me ask you first, what are some of the key ESG issues in fixed income today? Well, one of the things that's quite unique to the fixed income investment universe are the different parts of the capital structure. Unlike equity, where you're just investing in a specific ticker, we often have bonds that are issued at various different entities within a particular company. You may have a holding company. You may have different operating companies. In the utility sector, you may have generation companies. And there are ESG risks and different ESG risks at each one of those different entities. So we need to understand you know, the, the challenges and also the, the specific risks at each one of the entities where the bonds are issued. And that, again, kind of goes back to, you know, to being able to understand the entire capital structure, the risks and the cash flows associated with those risks, and being able to differentiate the ESG risks throughout the entire capital structure. I think there's, there's a number of challenges when we think about fixed income and, and integration of ESG within fixed income. I think the first is that it's, it is quite a complex landscape. If you think about the various sectors that are out there within fixed income and the, the different types of issuers. So you can have an investment grade issuer, which is fairly easy to understand because it's a company and you're looking at how ESG is integrated into uh, that company's decision making and evaluating the risks thereof. But then you also have securitized sectors. You have sovereigns that act differently than a corporate issuer might. High yield and emerging markets, you need to take into account different uh, risks within some of those markets. So we mentioned before, sovereigns will, will be much more weighted towards the governance side, where perhaps an, an emerging market issuer may be more weighted towards environmental or, or social factors. And then finally, the data within what we look at in the markets around ESG is all backward looking. But what you're really concerned about is what the companies or issuers are doing about correcting some of the issues going forward and how they're looking at putting in place the right systems to account and to manage those risks going forward. So we have to gear ourselves in ESG integration to understand the nuances by issuer or, or issuer type and make sure that we're evaluating how the issuer is ultimately looking forward rather than looking backward. Okay, Tom, can I ask you a bit about the specifics of how we integrate ESG into fixed income here at JP Morgan Asset Management? Do we have 
a team of dedicated analysts who think about this on the side and input, or is it different? It is truly a integrated process. However, we do have a leadership team called the Sustainable Investment Leadership Team within asset management. And that group is there to maintain the integrity of the process. So while we have the flexibility amongst investment engines, we still want to maintain a certain level and quality of analysis. To give you an example, each group within fixed income, as we mentioned earlier, ESG is there are specific nuances. We want to be able to provide each one of those teams the ability to come up with a process that fits their particular investment engine. So we have come up with something called the Commit, Implement, and Demonstrate Integration Process, where first of all, the specific team has a leader and a champion for the integration, and that is the commitment phase. The second is the implement phase. What are the specific investment and research phases that are incorporated in the investment analysis? And then finally, the demonstrate phase. What is the output? How are we measuring things? How is it implemented into portfolios? Once the specific investment team has come up with this process, that process is then brought to the sustainable investment leadership team where the sustainable investment leadership team has the knowledge that can really look at best practices across all of asset management. So if there's something that may be working in one part of equity that we can then particularly institute into, say, investment-grade research, that team or the SILT team has that ability to provide the feedback to the specific investment engine. So I'm completely clear then. It's something that every fixed income portfolio manager needs to be aware of in their investment decision making. This is not something that's happening on the side. That's correct. And we adopt an approach that we feel ESG integration is not going to be successful if it's designated to a separate team that sits alongside the rest of the investment process. It truly needs to be integrated throughout the investment process, which really means four things. Um, So first is that our research analysts, and we have 59 dedicated career research analysts that perform all of our bottom-up analysis on each issuer that we invest in, So we're very much a heavily research-oriented platform. And when they're doing their fundamental quantitative and technical research, the three things that we look at with every issuer and security that we invest in, ESG has to be factored into that analysis. The second part is that investment staff are required to discuss ESG information on issuers as a standard item during all of their investment committee meetings, which happen on a weekly, monthly, and and quarterly basis. The third area is that we also have proprietary tools that we've developed that provide access to other external ESG data sources and research reports and carbon metrics or or other analysis uh, within industry groupings. But also we, we embed these across portfolios so that we can identify outliers within the ESG universe or across an E, S, or G category. And then finally, the investment specialists, so my team, who's out discussing portfolios with clients all the time, are also discussing ESG uh, information criteria, even down to individual uh, names that might be of concern. And that provides a feedback loop back into the entire investment process. So we feel strongly that 
it needs to be something that's integrated across the entire platform um, and that everybody is, is having a dialogue around how these ESG factors are informing portfolios, but also impacting portfolios positively and negatively. Well, Tom, Travis, thank you for talking to me. It's been really interesting. And I think for anyone who had a prior that ESG was a sort of niche area or, or a nice to have in the investment process, you, you've made absolutely clear that that's not the case. And for, for long-term investing, it's essential that actually this approach is at the heart of what we're thinking about. Well, thanks again for having us, Karen. My pleasure. If you have enjoyed this fixed income series and our other Center for Investment Excellence Educational Insights, please join us at our new podcast location, JP Morgan Center for Investment Excellence, available on iTunes and Android podcast apps beginning April 26th. Our next series will feature asset class insights from our long-term capital markets assumptions and be available exclusively on this new podcast location. JP Morgan Insights will continue to host our Market Insights with Dr. David Kelly. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on April 3rd, 2018. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks— the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 
2011-20355E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada, for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, And in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, And J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, Both members of FINRA, SIPC, And J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.